Peru is in turmoil. The media are part of the problem and what they call centralismo. The Turkish government, no fan of criticism, cracks down on coverage of the earthquake. And dissent is a dangerous game in Belarus. Even those who have fled have targets on their backs. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. For three months now, Peruvians have been on the streets demonstrating. Dozens have been killed and hundreds hospitalized after protesting the impeachment of former President Pedro Castillo. Castillo, a left-wing politician, is now in jail for trying to shut down the country's right-wing Congress and take over the courts. Castillo comes from a rural part of Peru. He was elected despite getting some rough treatment from what Peruvians call Lima Media, Lima being the capital, news outlets mostly owned and controlled by Peru's elite. Now those same outlets are opposing the protests against Castillo's removal. Peru suffers from severe structural economic issues. Most of the country's wealth and political clout is concentrated in Lima, and more remote areas are starved of resources. Voters elected Castillo after he promised them fundamental economic and social reforms. The resistance they continue to face comes from those who have the most to lose, including some of the people who control news outlets in the capital. Peru is caught up in a power struggle, a conflict where the history runs deep, one laden with socio-political context. But we start with the protests that have been making headlines and what provoked them. A year and a half ago, a leftist presidential candidate, Pedro Castillo, came out of nowhere and won. Repeatedly stymied by a right-wing Congress, Castillo attempted a power grab in December by trying to shut down Congress and the courts. He wound up in prison, his vice president taking his job, and protesters took to the streets. The security response to those demonstrations, nearly 50 citizens killed, another 600 wounded or injured, is now the story. That and the news coverage, most of it black and white, minus the necessary shades of grey. Where Lima Media have done a really bad job is in reading the spectrum of demands from the protesters. At one end we have peaceful protesters who want new elections. At the other end you have violent protesters with a far-left uh, revolutionary anti-democratic agenda. Uh, and it's absolutely crucial to distinguish between these different groups of protesters and the government hasn't done that. It's treating them all as though they were violent. And a lot of the you know, so-called big media here in Lima have basically signed off on that. And that makes the relationship between the journalists and the protesters very tense. It makes it even more difficult to understand the motives behind these protests because it's likely that the protesters won't explain the complexity behind this mobilization to journalists. It's like the trust between the public and the media has been lost. That trust will not return as long as those media outlets use a term and a tactic known as teruqueo. Condenados por terrorismo, acusados de infiltrarse entre los manifestantes. 
Teruqueo is a uniquely Peruvian word, a method of fear-mongering that is being used to describe protesters as terrorists and vandals. It has its roots in the 1980s, the Shining Path, a communist revolutionary movement, and a guerrilla war that claimed almost 70,000 lives. When the neoliberal right-wing president, Alberto Fujimori, was elected in 1990, he waged an all-out war on the Shining Path, defeating the movement. But that term, teruqueo, has endured and is now used by conservative politicians against activists and opponents of all kinds. And it gets thrown around on mainstream media outlets covering the protests, as though the Shining Path is still a thing. The memory of the cruelty of that terrorist group remains, and therefore in Peru, the word terrorist comes with dreadful associations. To be branded a terrorist, that's one of the worst things that can be said about a Peruvian, and the term has been used by this government and its allies to delegitimize people who are exercising their right to peaceful protest. It's also an effective way to justify the disproportionate irrational violence. Simply brand the protesters as terrorists. Between 1980 and 2000, there were mass murders, targeted assassinations, acts of violence that terrorized the whole population. That's not what we see now. We see people throwing rocks, vandalism, etc. So to call someone a terrorist who is committing these kinds of crimes shows a lack of respect for victims of the real terrorist attacks carried out by the Shining Path. There have been locations in Peru where the violence by the authorities have been really excessive. And, of course, the press has reported on these instances. But there have also been places where the demonstrators themselves have been destructive. For example, a group of militants completely destroy one city's airport. They then try to take out a different airport and there was an armed response. And that caused the lives of the protesters who wanted to attack the airport. The security response to the unrest which has included attacks on journalists covering the story, has led to multiple government officials protesting in their own way, by resigning. The National Association of Journalists says there have been more than 150 attacks against reporters, some of them by demonstrators, but that the most frequent aggressors have been the police. Journalists covering the story from news studios are at risk in other ways. When Carlos Cornejo, a program host at the state-owned TV Peru, contested the official narrative on the death of a demonstrator, it cost him his job. In these past eight weeks, the police have used tear gas grenades several times as lethal weapons. There is CCTV footage showing how the police fired a tear gas grenade at a very close range and it hit one of the protesters on the head, shattering his skull. And this is what Carlos Cornejo commented on.
And quite a few of the Lima mainstream media have kind of refused to acknowledge that it was a policeman that, that killed him. We even had, and this is completely absurd, the police coming out at one point claiming he was killed by a stone thrown by other protesters. And then this was um, picked up by mainstream media here and repeated. And when Carlos Cornejo basically said the truth, his program was um, shut down and he was fired. Peru is struggling under a socio-political divide that has a geographical element to it, what Peruvians call centralismo. Almost one-third of the population lives in the capital, Lima. It is where the power lies, the money is, and most of the media. The former president, Pedro Castillo, comes from the north, a rural area where too many people live without the basics, heating, education, health care, even fresh water. Castillo tried to reform the Constitution to create a more equitable country, ensuring citizens the right to fresh water for one, but could not get the proposal past the more conservative Congress. His successor, Dina Buluarte, says she wants to make those constitutional changes. But like Castillo, standing in her way are powerful forces in Lima. Ever since the first calls for constitutional reform, Lima's business leaders were vocal in their opposition. Among these business people are the heads of Lima's media groups. The majority of the TV stations and newspaper owners have other business interests, private health clinics, mining companies, oil and gas extraction, or telecommunication firms. So there are numerous overlapping interests between big industries and the media companies that then they use to protect their interests. And when we are talking about the centralized media, we are reflecting on the larger brutal defect that Peru has of centralism. And this is a country that has failed to decentralize. There is much more press in Lima than in the different regions. And when events occur in the regions, the local press do report on it, but most of the media is in the capital. Centralism is our reality. That is where Peru finds itself in 2023. A new president in place, a continuing showdown between her and Congress, an underlying conflict between the urban and the rural, the haves and the have-nots. And one of the things the haves have on their side, the mainstream media, the power to shape the story. For the rescuers still trying to find survivors in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, social media has helped save lives. The Turkish government, though, has been riled by some of the content it's seeing online. Minakshi Ravi has been tracking this story. Richard, in the quake zone, social media has been vital. <laughs> Numerous victims trapped in the rubble have posted updates on YouTube, Twitter and Instagram, and those online messages have helped guide rescuers to them. <laughs> Social media is also home to a lot of criticism from Turkish opposition politicians, journalists and human rights activists who say the Erdogan government has failed to mobilize enough resources. 
Ankara has pushed back, pointing out genuine cases of false information, like inaccurate reports of hospitals collapsing and bogus disaster relief funds, to justify a clampdown. Anayasanın 119. maddesinin bize verdiği yetkiye dayanarak olağanüstü hal ilan etme kararı aldık. The three-month state of emergency declared by the president affects the 10 worst-hit provinces, places restrictions on media in those areas, limiting criticism until the week before the national elections that are scheduled in May. The government has been accused of having one eye on those elections by branding relief supplies sent to the quake zone with the president's image. Several journalists have been taken into custody over their reporting of the disaster, while others are under investigation. The Erdogan government has a long track record of curbing dissent in Turkey. Four months ago, Parliament passed a law that carries a three-year jail term for anyone publishing or sharing content deemed by the government to be disinformation. Press freedom groups say that law could lead to increased censorship and self-censorship, and the earthquake and Erdogan's response to it has done nothing to alleviate those concerns. Thanks, Mina. To the former Soviet Union now, and a country where much of the population is out to resist Moscow's imperialist ambitions. The country is not Ukraine, it is Belarus. Sharing a border with Russia, Belarus is led by President Alexander Lukashenko, a close ally of Vladimir Putin. He's been in power for 29 years, and his authoritarian ways have centered on the Russification of the country. Criticism of Lukashenko and his relationship with the Kremlin comes at a cost. In 2020, hundreds of thousands of Belarusians took to the streets to protest Lukashenko's rule. That led to an unprecedented crackdown on dissent, and tens of thousands ended up behind bars. The Listening Post's Johanna Hus now, with some of those who have fled, exiled Belarusians who are still getting the story out on the struggle for democracy in Minsk and independence from Moscow. Margarita Lefchuk, an opera singer turned satirist in Vilnius, Lithuania. Jan Rudzik, a blogger in Warsaw, Poland. Juliana Shemetowicz, an activist leading a hacker collective in New York, USA. Seemingly, the three have little in common, except they are all exiles from Belarus, wanted or on trial in absentia on terrorism charges for criticizing President Alexander Lukashenko and his government in Minsk. When I traveled to Lithuania in October 2020 for a performance, I got a text from my relatives telling me I had been blacklisted back home for expressing my political views and was wanted by the regime. They said I shouldn't come back to Belarus. At first, I disagreed. But when others said the same, I was persuaded not to return. The regime has brought charges against me. Of course, it's not funny. We are talking about real trials. But opposition voices joke about how pleased we are when we get onto the regime's list of convicts. This regime only prosecutes the best. Lukashenko's regime labeled cyberpartisans as a terrorist group. Uh, they even labeled me personally as a terrorist. He famously said that he's afraid of uh, cyber weapons more than he's afraid of nuclear weapons. So the moment uh, the cyber partisans started to being active and successful in damaging the regime systems, they got scared. I made my decision to leave in 2019. 
I had spent a long time working with state authorities, and I realized I wouldn't be able to change anything from within the country. The authorities now consider me a threat, because in my blog, I lay out radical ideas, and I write exactly what Belarusians have on their minds. The government has charged me under 10 different laws. Of course, I don't believe I'll get a free trial, because the entire system in Belarus, if you can even call it that, is illegal. That system has its roots in the 1990s, when, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Belarus became an independent state, with Alexander Lukashenko as its democratically elected leader. But Belarus's democracy was short-lived. In power for over 29 years, Lukashenko has referred to himself as Europe's last dictator. And he's living up to his own branding. The repression of political and journalistic opponents is just one grim aspect of his authoritarian rule. But the crackdown on dissent took a turn for the worse in 2020, when Lukashenko's highly disputed election to a sixth term triggered the biggest anti-government protests in Belarus's history. After the unprecedented mass protests in 2020, Lukashenko uh, decided to use terror against peaceful protesters and activists. Up to 40,000 people went through prison. Even now, every month, up to 100 people get detained. After the brutality, Lukashenko successfully suppressed the mass movement. However, people have not forgiven what happened. Um, many had to flee the country, so now a lot of activists are working abroad. These repressive tactics have been in use for many years. However, before 2020, the regime didn't touch those who were not involved in politics. Following the protests, though, ordinary Belarusians were suddenly getting detained and their families threatened. I spent 16 years studying to become an opera singer. I wasn't interested in politics, but when it started to affect the lives of my friends, my family, I couldn't keep silent any longer. When I left for Lithuania, I started publishing satirical videos on YouTube and TikTok, songs and sketches mocking the regime. In such hard times, people need jokes and satire. It's a real weapon against the regime. Speaking out costs me my career, but if sacrificing my profession benefits my country, then I will continue on this course. But what if it isn't just your career you are sacrificing, but your freedom itself? In May 2021, a commercial plane from Athens to this city, Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, was rerouted to Belarus. Now, the authorities there blamed a bomb threat, but they had their eye on one of the passengers on board, Raman Protasevich, the former editor-in-chief of a popular anti-government telegram channel, Nexta. As soon as that plane touched down in Minsk, Pratasevich was arrested and he has been in prison on terrorism charges ever since. The incident caused international outcry, with a notable exception, Belarus's neighbor to the east, Russia. Since the dissolution of the USSR, the two countries have maintained close economic and political ties, their leaders a match made in Soviet heaven.
я уже начинаю думать, что он, ну, приняли решение, что вместе одинаково. Not least because Lukashenko owes his political survival to Vladimir Putin, whose promise of a Russian military intervention in Belarus's 2020 protests helped quell the popular uprising. Fast forward to February 2022 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Moscow turned to Minsk to cash in the favor. We once thought that Lukashenko ruled Belarus. It turns out it is ruled by Putin. Lukashenko has allowed Russian troops to enter Belarus to launch rockets into Ukraine. It proves that Lukashenko sold our country to Moscow a long time ago. The entire world now sees Belarus as part of Russia. But Belarus is not Russia, and we will be saying that to everyone until our last breath. Belarus is not Russia. We contacted multiple departments of the Belarusian government with questions about Lukashenko's relationship to Putin and the country's crackdown on its critics. We received no responses. As the war in Ukraine rumbles on, Belarusians say they are fighting two battles at once, Russian imperialism and an authoritarian government at home. What unites Belarusians and Ukrainians is our efforts to escape from the Russian Empire and to take our own democratic, European route. But the presence of an authoritarian leader like Lukashenko complicates the situation. Ever since back in 1994, every time the Kremlin supported Lukashenko, he had to sacrifice something. First, it was the economy. And then in 2020, it was the country's sovereignty. So it looks like the fight for democracy has been sidelined by the fight for the existence of Belarus as a nation. Separatists declared that they would help Ukraine as much as possible when the war started uh, right away. Separatists successfully attacked the Belarusian railways. So after this attack, the movement of Russian military trains stopped completely for some time. And it was a very important moment as the attack on Kyiv and Kyiv area was happening from the territory of Belarus because Kyiv is situated close to the Belarusian-Ukrainian border. We still provide a lot of information to the Ukrainian special forces uh, because cyberpartisans um, have unique set of databases from the Belarusian regime. For now, Belarus's involvement in Russia's war effort is limited to logistical support. But some fear full-scale mobilization could be on the cards. For Lukashenko, it's a catch-22. Mobilize and risk reigniting a popular uprising, or don't and alienate his closest ally and lifeline in Moscow. But for dissidents in exile, one thing is clear. They won't return to Belarus until Europe's last dictator is out. I think about returning to Belarus every day, and I know this day will come when the time is right. I am full of energy and ready to rebuild our country. We just need to wait, and I am patient. And finally, the rise of AI chatbots. They have the potential to revolutionize the way news stories are reported, allowing for faster, more accurate coverage. They also come with risks, such as the potential for bias and inaccuracy. Now, what you just heard was actually written by a chatbot. We asked it for a short studio intro to the following video, and out came a ready-made script, one that needed just a few tweaks.
That is fast becoming a cliché in news stories about AI, to open with a few lines written by a chatbot, and we couldn't resist. We'll leave you now with some television journalists trying to wrap their heads around this new technology, which could cost some in the news industry their jobs. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post. Can artificial intelligence replace the human brain? Chat GPT. Chat uh, GPT. Chat GPT. Chatbot GTP, thank you for talking to me today. You have to be living under a rock if you haven't heard of Chat GPT, a language model created by OpenAI, has the ability to generate human like text and hold natural conversations. With AI's power comes responsibility, outsmarting humans, and making decisions that are not in our best interest. Interesting points there. And by the way, Everything my twin just said are words, thoughts, if you will, that came straight from the AI. What you just heard me reading wasn't written by me. No, I didn't write that. That was written by a new online tool called ChatGPT, wrote everything I just said. I'm glad I could help answer your questions and provide information. Well, thank you for sharing your ways to change the world. I don't know why I'm thanking you. You're a chatbot.